This audio production is brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com, David Wolf's premium longevity member site. The content found on TheBestDayEver.com from David Wolf and New Horizon Health, Inc. is for informational purposes only and is in no way intended as medical advice, as a substitute for medical counseling, or as treatment cure for any disease or health condition, and nor should it be construed as such because that would be illegal. Always work with a qualified health professional before making any changes to your diet, supplement use, prescription drug use, lifestyle, or exercise activities. Please understand that you assume all risks from the use, non-use, or misuse of this information. Dear David, earlier this week I prepared a couple of ferments for the first time, including a coconut water spirulina blend. Amazingly, it turned a deep blue slash purple after about 24 hours. Can't wait to try it, but it won't be ready till tomorrow. Anyway, I'm keen to do some more, but without cruciferous vegetables. Do you have any recipes for ferments made without cruciferous vegetables that you could share? Well, beets. Beets are actually really easy to ferment. And uh, at our longevity conference that we just had, our latest one, Sola did an entire presentation on how to ferment beets. And it's kind of like the Scandinavian version of borscht. Um, but then they don't often ferment borscht in Russia, but in Scandinavia they do, and beet is the main ingredient, which is really a good thing to use because the latest news on beets is that they're the best methyl donor that we know of, and they're a liver detoxifier for that reason. And if you've been tuning into what I've been saying about hormones, there's a real big problem with methylation that's related to the backup or the clog up, more specifically, of bad estrogen in our liver. And we need more methyl groups in order to move that bad estrogen through or even convert it over into good estrogen. And when I say move it through, I'm talking about detoxifying it. And so beets are, are pretty much the leader in that. I will say one thing about my experience with fermenting spirulina, blue-green algae, and chlorella is that there's a lot, it creates a lot of gas, like not, not flatulence, but gas in, in the, in the substance and so you get a like if you ferment um let's say you use it but uh chlorella spirulina blue green algae in a kombucha you're going to get a higher alcohol content significantly higher and you're also going to get tremendous amount of bubbles and gas in there you know where you open it and the whole thing explodes and just never stops bubbling over so i want to put that warning out there that's been my experience I've also heard that that happens with Jun. I, I used to do Juns way back in the old days, um, but we never did spirulina and blue-green algae Juns, but I was talking to a friend of mine who does, and, and she said that she has experienced the same thing, that there, it's higher alcohol content and you're dealing with a lot more fermentation, so there's a lot more bubbling that goes on. And Dave, let me ask you a question about the methylation. Um, when you ferment beets or ferment anything that has methyl groups, does it affect the... Uh, methyl groups, does it increase them, does it decrease them, does it affect the ability for whatever you're fermenting uh, for better or worse or maybe the same methylation? It, it should increase them. So if you have, like the two biggest methyl donors in, you know, kind of the conventional raw food fare are beets and goji berries. And when you ferment those things, you actually increase the availability of the methyl groups and you actually increase the methyl groups because methyl groups are associated with live food like real live food, like fermented food, has more available methyl groups. And so what you'd really want to do if you want to be a clever, take the highest methylation foods like beets and goji berries and ferment them, and you're going to get the most amount of methyl groups. 
in general, all live food or raw food has more methyl groups in it, and cooked food doesn't. That's one of the main problems with cooked food is it's missing methyl groups. Um, but secondarily, there are some raw foods that have a much higher fraction of methyl groups like beets and goji berries. And just one final follow-up on that question the person posed is the subject of goitrogens, and they wanted to do this fermentation without cruciferous vegetables because of the goitrogens in some of the cruciferous vegetables. And I know you've got an interesting kind of angle on that where the goitrogens are probably not as much as you think. So do you have any comments on that? According to Dr. Jonathan Wright, who's probably the leading bioidentical hormone authority in the world and probably one of the leading authorities on thyroid because there's a very strong relationship between high high estrogen, low progesterone, moderate to high testosterone, and low thyroid in women. There's a very strong connection between all of that. That, that particular hormone profile is very common. And the goitrogens that are in our current food supply, let's say it's in well, you know, broccoli or cauliflower, any of the cruciferous vegetables, is actually very low. Um, that's why we domesticated those foods, by the way. The goitrogens in wild mustards are much higher, substantially higher, than in any of the domesticated mustards or cruciferous vegetables. Um, what Dr. Jonathan Wright says is that you can ha easily have four or five servings of broccoli, cabbage, kale, other cruciferous vegetables per week without negatively influencing your thyroid. Now, that's all well and good, but that may not be enough for what we want. You know, we may really want, like, 20 servings a week to deal with cancer or, you know, whatever. So then we have to break down the goitrogens. So what are different ways of doing that? Well, as far as I can tell, if you ferment the cruciferous vegetables, then that breaks down the goitrogens. If you juice um, the, the um, cruciferous vegetables. That also will break down goitrogens. Pretty much goitrogens are, are very sensitive and volatile, and they break down very easily. So anything you do to the food, um, juice it, you know, where you're basically shredding it, um, fermenting it, or cooking it is actually going to remove or lower the goitrogen levels. Okay, that's a really helpful tip for people because I know some people are a little bit scared of goitrogens, and so that kind of clarifies that whole issue, so that's fantastic. Okay, next question, and this is a broad question, and so probably whatever you feel is appropriate to answer this question, we'll kind of do that, but it's a very, very broad question. It says, Dear David, I would like to know what I can do to stop calcification in the body and help break down the calcium buildup in the body. What are the best products or therapies in order to stop or prevent calcification? Well, that's, that's my whole Longevity Now program. So if, if you don't have that program, then you need to get that program because that is what that whole project is about. As you know, Lou, I mean, you, you helped me with that project immensely. There's a major project. It's like 400-something page book, DVDs, CDs. There's a lot there. And so I don't want to belabor that, but I'll, I, will, I will just say that essentially it comes down to the five-part process and its anti-aging process, which is one – you got to have bad calcium dissolvers in your diet, in, in, in your in your fare somewhere. Um, second is having the um, immunologically active substances in your diet so that you can break down calcium-forming organisms and also viruses, fungus, mold, candida, bad 
bacteria, mutated cells, which all have a very strong connection to calcification. You know, whenever somebody's had like a long bout with, you know, some kind of a fungus, for example, in their foot or whatever, there's going to be calcification developing around that, that infection. And there's that, and that's known. Whenever there's a long-standing infection, you're going to have calcification. And, and this is actually what's getting people, for those of you who are listening who are new, calcification is associated with every disease. Calcification is associated with every age-related syndrome you can think of. So the, the issue of calcification is no longer in debate in medical science. It is known that the problem is calcification. The real debate now is on what's causing it. That's where more of the debate is happening. Um, Rudolf Steiner basically said that when forces of the cosmos outweigh forces that are coming through you from the earth, then you'll start to crystallize, which will form calcification. So right there, what he's saying is you've got to stay connected to the earth because the earth helps you resist calcification. Whereas, you know, if you're floating around in outer space, not only are you going to experience osteoporosis, but you're also going to get calcified. That you, it's, a, it's a big problem, actually. You'll have crystallization formation in your body. Um, so anyway, let's go back to the things. We have one is you've got to have bad calcium dissolvers. Two, you've got to have the immunologically active um, substances. Three, cell rejuvenating supplements and things that can help to clean up the calcification, enzymes, probiotics, vitamin C, et cetera. And then you've got to have, number four, that connection with the earth, and then number five is you actually have to mechanically break up the calcification, which means it's great to have the right soap in the bathtub to clean up the scale near the drain. However, you've got to also have some muscle behind it to scrub off the bad calcium that builds up. Basically what that means is you've got to get deep tissue body work. You've got to get some raw thing. You've got to get somebody getting your tissue and really deal with that calcification, which is initially painful, but then very suddenly isn't painful, which I find interesting, indicating that calcification is associated with our nervous system. So if, let's say, the calcification is formed by organisms, then a smart organism would set themselves up right on your nervous system, so that as soon as you try to remove it, they go, nope, I'm going to cause you pain, right, so you mm-hmm. don't remove them. And so that's why deep tissue body work hurts for a while, but then suddenly doesn't hurt anymore because you've removed that that um, I guess, for lack of a better word, a parasite from your nervous system. Okay, great. And I would also recommend pe- people listen to the audio presentation on the Longevity Now program that we posted on the best day ever. We actually have the first of those CDs. We've got that audio right here on the bestdayever.com. You can check out under the audios under the David Wolf artist section. And moving on to the next question. Dear David, I'm so happy I found you in this wonderful site. Thanks for everything that you do. Your work is transforming my life in ways I never could have imagined. I have an involuted goiter and many symptoms of hypothyroidism. I'm 100% raw vegetarian, and I have just begun following the thyroid program outlined in your book with Truth Culkins. When I take the oral dose of electrodyne, iodine, and swish it in my mouth, I get a distinct metallic taste in my mouth that lasts for a few minutes after I swallow the iodine. I have three gold crowns and a few porcelain ones and no mercury. I know the gold and maybe even the porcelain can be mixed with other metals, sometimes changing the color of the crown. Mine are still gold if that helps. You determine what they are mixed with. Do you know why this is happening and if I have potentially toxic metal in my mouth? 
If I do, will the folic acid, zeolites, and other supplements be enough to reduce that effect? Also, is it better to stop taking the iodine orally and just apply it to my skin instead? Okay, let's, let's, let's address the last item first. If you put iodine on your skin, yes, you do absorb it right into your skin. And you, you also do lose a little bit of it because some of it evaporates. So what I generally do is I put it on my skin and then kind of put my skin on top of my skin. So let's say if I do it on my forearms, I'll, put, I'll do one forearm, rub it into the other forearm, and then hold my forearms together so none of it has the chance to evaporate. So I get a little bit more of my money's worth. But then I don't have to deal with the harsh taste of iodine. A few drops of iodine isn't bad, but when you're doing a lot of iodine, it, it kind of gets a little bit – I get a little bit of resistance, you know, myself. I, I just kind of don't do it because it doesn't really taste good. So that's one thing. Um, going back, going a little bit deeper into the whole issue with like the throat and the metals and all that, there are contaminants that are present in all gold crowns and all gold fillings. Um, copper, silver, nickel are present. Nickel is the one that's the most dangerous, and, and you know, nickel is a heavy metal, and we can get that in dosages into our body that are difficult for a body to deal with. And that's that was noted basically on the trace mineral research that had been done over all these years. Because nickel is a trace mineral and is a good, it's, you need it. It's actually a, a good trace mineral, but can easily be consumed in excess because the amount we need is so totally minute. Most of the trace minerals that we require are needed in very, very, very minute amounts. And that, that's important to, to understand. So when you have a filling, you're talking about a huge amount of nickel being present as compared to what even your whole body requires. So that can call, cause nickel poisoning. Um, another thing that can be said is that there is some what of a connection between thyroid problems, goiter, and heavy metal toxicity. And the thyroid is very negatively charged electrically, and heavy metals are very positively charged. And so, therefore, you're going to get an attraction between the thyroid and heavy metals. Also, the thyroid is heavily vascularized, so all the blood flow flows through the thyroid more than any other gland in your body. And therefore, if you have heavy metal contamination, it's going to get stuck in your thyroid most likely. If you if you take zeolites, that's a really good idea. Gargle with zeolites. It might not necessarily be in your mouth, it could be in your throat. That's very possible. In fact, it's likely. Um, I remember I, I had this one guy on a call once that he had throat cancer. And he, had, he got on zeolites and he immediately tasted heavy metals. He was in New York, and so, you know, New York is notorious for having very high level of contamination in the environment. Mm. And and he actually started tasting metals, and he was able to draw off the throat cancer with zeolites. And, and basically, the triggering mechanism was apparently heavy metal toxicity, because as soon as he that metal taste in his mouth went away, the cancer went away. So wow. Something to be aware of. And, and pulvic acid is very good, too. I, I don't want to let that go as well. I mean... Fulvic acid is very good heavy metal detoxifier. Fulvic acid and zeolite can be used conjunctively together. Dear Dave, last winter they discovered a melanoma on my left leg. I had it removed and have been taking reishi mushroom extract and vitamin D to prevent any further occurrences. Now it appears I may have a melanoma on my left bottom eyelid. Do you have any suggestions on what else I might take to stop this horrible disease? I am 62 years old and have been trying to eat organic foods and exercise. The doctors are blaming this all on the sun, obviously. <laughs> That's the whole thing about, like, 
you know, stay inside, watch the news, make sure you use your banks, you know, make sure you obey the law, but don't go out in the sun. That could actually hurt you. Um, the, actually, there's way more anti-cancer properties associated with sunlight than, than cancer-inducing properties, you know, by factors of hundreds to one, just to put that out there. And let, let's talk about melanoma. Um, the way I kind of look at it is, is the toxicity of our environment, toxicity of our bodies, and then we take all that and we bake all that toxicity in the sun, that's going to cause mutations of cells. That's probably the triggering factor that's behind melanoma. And there's a genetic predisposition for sure. Um, but generally, you're not going to even develop that genetic predisposition unless there's a toxicity element, which can only be really associated with our whole civilization. I mean, there's so much toxicity out there, 77,000 different chemicals developed since 1940 that have been dumped into the environment and a lot of that's gotten into us. Now, what to do about it? By far in the research, and I just wrote you know, this book on Shaga, Shaga mushroom is number one. No question about that against melanoma of all kinds. That That's just the way it is. There's nothing even close to Shaga in terms of dealing with melanoma. Now, how, and this is how I would approach it. Eight strong teas of Shaga a day. Shaga poultices, so Shaga tea, dipped into like a cloth and then and then soaking the eyelid with shaga tea so that you, you can actually get the shaga directly to the site where the problem is. Um, I would also recommend looking into driving the shaga in with DMSO. Now, because it's the eye, you have to be very careful about that. Now, in the DMSO handbook by Halstead, which is a book that was given to me years ago, and it was it's one of the best books on DMSO, it was shown that small dosages of DMSO under clinical evaluation did not damage the eye, um, the human eye, although it could damage a rabbit's eye, and I can't remember there was some other animal that they had tested. So the human eye was fine. So that's important to realize, but definitely before you use DMSO, always read a book on it. Read up on DMSO. It's a you know very caustic substance and can burn you. So you want to realize that, like, okay, maybe, you know, I don't use this unless I know what I'm doing, and the only way I'm going to know is by reading about it. DMSO is a solvent, so therefore it's going to take the shaga. Let's say, you you know, you wet your eye with shaga tea and you spray it with DMSO, and spraying it is a way, good way of applic- applying it. It's a great application process. You're actually going to drive the shaga deeper into the tissue with the DMSO. That's why you use DMSO. Some people are aware of that. Some people have never heard that before. So I want to just clarify that for those who are new, that that's why you'd use DMSO. Um, I would also recommend Shaga Mycelium. So I would actually recommend every Shaga product and take it every day, all day long, nonstop. Um, with, a, with a situation like a melanoma, a melanoma is named a melanoma because it's based on a problem with the formation of melanin, which is the pigment of the skin. And so the melanin in shaga is the highest easily of any food in the whole world by factors of like 10 to 12 fold to the next thing, which is in the, still in the mushroom family and you know, hundreds, hundreds of times greater than any other. This program was brought to you by thebestdayever.com. Thanks for listening.